Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. In her big-heartedness, Be My Neighbor installation at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, Pipilotti Wrist has created a small world for people to explore. There are long hanging strings of light that change colors, blue to purple to red to white. You can stand in the middle of these hundreds of strings of light as they change color over and over and the effect is hypnotic. There are structures throughout the installation, there are houses, but not quite. And inside there are rooms that are familiar, but not quite. It's all deeply immersive, full of intense color and saturated imagery. In one room, an oversized couch and an armchair and lamp, making anyone who sits on the furniture feel small, as you look into a tiny television with a video playing. In unexpected places, there are neon signs saying things like, help me. The exhibit is on view until June 6, 2022. So if you're in Los Angeles, get yourself to MoCA and be Pipilotti Wrist's neighbor. From Luminary, this is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. I am Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. On this week's agenda, I'm thinking about what it takes to be an artist on your own terms. Most of us who are creative like to think of ourselves as independent, free-thinking, uncompromising when it comes to our values. Lately, though, I have been struggling. Beyond just the usual challenges of writer's block and overwhelm, I have grown weary of all of the noise that comes with publishing work. I still love writing. I love writing for myself and going deep into the zone. But the further I get in my career, the more I am intimately aware that there is an audience far vaster than I care to imagine that will engage with my work for better and worse. And some of that engagement has become quite painful. There are, of course, the death threats and blah, 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 the kind where you're not sure they're serious, but you can't really take the chance that they're not. There are the insults and endless barrage for me of fat jokes and insults because Mm. there is a sentiment in some quarters that if you are fat, you shouldn't have opinions and you certainly shouldn't share them. You can't stand up for what you believe. You're a societal burden who should live your fat life silently in shame, (laughs) which I, of course, refuse to do. Over the past few weeks, men, mostly, have sent me pictures of hippos saying they found my picture. So clever. They have told me I shouldn't talk about public health when I am, they assume, so profoundly unhealthy. They have called me names. They've told me I'm disgusting. They have reached me via email at several different addresses. They've tried DMs on Instagram. They've mentioned me on Twitter so I can see their name. They've ranted about me on internet forums. It is exhausting. Now... I do what I can to filter out most of this hatred because it's unproductive. It doesn't help me. It isn't good faith criticism and exposing myself to it only makes me miserable. But some of it does get under my skin. I am human. I have my tender places. 
increasingly, I find myself scared to write. And I never in my life thought I would say something like that. Mm -hmm. Here I am at my desk, scared to broach certain subjects. It has been five years since my last book was published. And I realize I've been holding my next two books back, books I'm actually pretty proud of, because I just don't want to deal with the bullshit. Admitting that makes me angry at myself for having thin skin, for caring too much what people think, Mm -hmm. for not having the stamina to be a punching bag for angry people who project their frustrations with their own lives onto me. In these moments, when I try to find the courage to forge ahead, despite what I know will come when I put writing into the world, I look to writers I admire and respect who are intelligent and provocative and seemingly fearless when standing in their truth and committing to their artistic practice. One such person is the luminous Runda Girard. If you haven't read Runda Girard, now would be a good time to start. Her first novel, A Map of Home, was a coming-of-age novel about an Arab-American girl during the first Gulf War. Her second book, Him, Me, Muhammad Ali, was a collection of short stories. And last year, she came out with an essay collection called Love is an Ex-Country, which is really a beautiful memoir told through a cross-country road trip. Runda brings many perspectives into her writing. She is queer and writes candidly about sex and kink and pleasure and desire. She is Arab and grew up Muslim. She is a proud fat femme. In other words, she is an outsider in more ways than one, and her writing revels in this and in outspokenness. Beyond her writing, she is a tenured professor at Fresno State University, a filmmaker, screenwriter, actor, activist, and delightful human. She is unapologetic about her politics and unwavering in calling out injustice. And of course, she is also a dear friend. And I wanted to talk to her about living an artistic life on her own terms, which she has thus far most emphatically done. Rhonda Girard, welcome to the Roxanne Gay Agenda. Oh, my God. The gay agenda. <laughs> the gay agenda. The agenda. The There's so many just ways to play oh, with that word. My God. Thank you for having me and for being you. Oh, go on. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good. I'm nodding my head along to everything you're saying and feeling you really. Yes. You know, I know that you've been through it many a time. So one of the first encounters I had with Runda, we've been friends for a very long time, but I published an essay that she wrote about white women belly dancing. And that was maybe a decade ago. That was literally a decade ago. I still get mail. It was one of the most (laughs) incendiary, apparently, pieces I have ever published. And at the time, I just thought, oh, this is a nice little thought about belly dancing. And I really appreciate this essay. It never occurred to me that people were going to respond. Do you remember that essay, Rhonda? Of course. I remember (laughs) I remember writing it for you like you were working at Salon Mm -hmm. and you said, oh, you know, I'm I'm doing these essays by feminists. Do you have anything to say? And I had just kind of been annoyed by a belly dancer interrupting a dinner and, you know, doing what I call maybe like a like a costume of being Arab. Like she was definitely white, but she had dyed her hair and had makeup on her eyes to make her look more Arab, etc. And I was just like so annoyed by it. And I was still annoyed by it. So I just thought, oh, I'll just write about how I don't like cultural appropriation and how, yes, I understand that anyone can belly dance, but should you really pretend to be Arab when you're belly dancing? And 
can you do it in a way that's more respectful? And people were just so angry, so angry. Like violently angry. I I mean, I've (laughs) never gotten more hate mail. And that's saying something. And what (laughs) struck me was, A, that people didn't really read what you wrote. Right. And B, white people in particular cannot stand being told no. Right, right. That something is not theirs. Their response is usually like, well, it's everybody's. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, can it just be if I'm on the margins and this is something that I care about? Can it just be mine for a moment? Like, Mm -hmm. can you not pretend to be me and then be part of a culture that is consistently beginning wars, you know, starting Mm -hmm. fights and bombing people like it's it's not fun? No, it isn't. Did you anticipate that kind of a reaction? Did you know that people were going to feel some kind of way? Not at all. I just thought, oh, I'm talking about belly dancing. I I called it Why I Can't Stand White Belly Dancers. (laughs) And the title just turned into Why I Hate White Belly Dancers for some people. I never used the word hate ever, but it just kept continuously being used when people were discussing this. I got media requests from like, you know, right wing sources. I got media requests from people who are pretending to be in the media, but were actually white belly dancers. (laughs) That I did not know. That is incredibly extra. Oh, yeah. I got fan mail that was kind of like fake fan mail where they start by saying, like, I really adore you and your writing. But why would you Mm -hmm. say that people can't belly dance? Haven't you heard of Korean tacos? You know, they were making these really not logical arguments about how well, the entire world is melded and and remixed. Like, why are you having a hard time with this particular thing? You must be, you know, a po- like, what are you? Why are you policing people? Yes, it was uh, definitely eye opening. And I too have gotten those emails that are stealth, where they start out saying yeah. something sane and normal, and uh-huh. then it takes a quick left turn into just <laughs> psychosis. Yeah. And I always think and hatred. Oh man, I need to stop reading my own email because nothing good is yes. going to come of this. Yes. Do you ever pause before you put that kind of opinion, that kind of thought into the world? Opinions that are frankly normal and interesting yeah. and engaging, but that people misinterpret willfully and then sort yeah. of get really incensed about. I think after that particular thing happened, I think you said, or the salon editor-in-chief said, why don't you write a follow-up addressing what people are saying? And a decade ago, you know, I was in my 30s. Like, Mm -hmm. my bless my little heart. I was like, yes, let me double down. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. I wrote, the next essay I wrote was why I still can't stand white belly dancers. (laughs) And I kind of went through one by one with people's arguments and like tore them, you know, to pieces. They're very easy to tear, I have to yes. say. They, were not they are the well weakest of. of arguments. Yes. And links. And so I just thought, yeah, I'll do that. And, you know, it got worse, obviously. So I think that entire experience helped me see that, yes, there are times when, you know, whatever I have to say is going to be met with anger or misunderstanding, you know, the thing about people being committed to misunderstanding you is real. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned several things. One is it's okay to take a break and step back, um, not from having opinions, thank God, but from publishing them maybe. If 
whoever's out there is just going to be angry and to preserve myself and to just care for myself. But I'm also angry that when you do do that, there's this sense of victory on the other side. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, look, we got her to be quiet. That's upsetting. But at the same time, it's it's not true. It's just self-preservation to step back. Yeah. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year. Equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When did you first know you were creative? And what did that look like? Um, I think one of my memories that I'm very fond of, and it's a very queer memory, 
is because I grew up in a country that was very conservative in terms of women's bodies. I grew up in Kuwait and, you know, all women's bodies were censored on the cover of things or whatever. Mm -hmm. They would put like black mark out on it. And I remember just being five or six and I had this magazine and it had women in it. And um, it was like a fashion mag that my mom brought home. And I started cutting the clothes off because I thought if I, with a pair of scissors, cut the clothes off, I would see what was underneath. Mm-hmm. I would see what people were wearing under their clothes. <laughs> and my mom was like, no, that's not how it works. This is a photograph. And I just remember being really upset that I couldn't, you know, like see. I wanted to see what I wasn't supposed to see. Mm-hmm. And I think that is probably such a huge sort of like seed for why I'm creative. You know, that curiosity. Do you still find that you want to see what you're not supposed to see? A hundred percent all the time. And where does your curiosity take you? Uh, It takes me so many places. It takes me to, I guess, voyeuristic moments in dungeons. It Mm. takes me to being, you know, in an art space and being curious about the mechanics of how something was created. You know, just watching a film and instead of just enjoying it, wanting to see like you know is there was there really a boom in that shot like the, mm-hmm. the little imperfections that um we're not supposed to see i think we can learn so much from absolutely and when did you start to write and what was your early writing like i was lucky enough to have creative writing classes when i was in first second fifth seventh grade and i think we had them like once a week And we had a notebook. And so that's when I started writing, like all of us, right? Like very early on. And then we just keep going. Those of us who are still writers. I know that you eventually would go on to get an MFA in a very cold place. (laughs) That's actually when I first came upon your writing. You were writing a blog. Rock Slinger was the blog. Yes. And I have no (laughs) idea how I came across it. But I just remember thinking... Oh, my goodness, this person is someone I would want to read endlessly. And you were also a single mother at the time. Yeah. And so how do you find, and especially back then, how did you find the energy to stay committed to your art and also honor your commitment to your child? So that MFA program was the second MFA program I started. The first one was set up in such a way that I didn't feel like I could honor both my child and my work. Mm -hmm. First of all, just like finding a place that would financially support me so that I could be there for him and for myself and for my art and didn't have to work a nine to five. That was the number one thing. Finding that Michigan program was really important. And then, you know, he would go to school. He went to school from eight to three and I didn't really have classes every single day. So the days that he was in school, when I didn't have classes, I would write. It was always kind of like that with him. Like he would go to school and I would write. And then I would find something, some way to earn a living around that while he was home or while he was sleeping. That was just a big part of it. Sorting out the time commitments and the finances. Which I think is characteristic of the writing life for most people yeah like trying to balance life whatever that may be however it might look with money and then finding space for creativity yeah 
One of the things that strikes me about you is you're always doing something creative. Mm-hmm. It's always happening. It's true. Whether it's filmmaking, like every time I talk to you, you're like, oh, I'm off to make a movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm painting something. Yes. Or I'm drawing something. Yes. Yeah. And so now that you, you know, your child is an adult now. Thank God. You are a successful writer. How do you still find that creative spark? It is a little bit harder now that I have more time, mm-hmm. right? It's it's really interesting. Like now that I have a little bit more time and definitely space because my, you know, some like most young people in America like lived at home for a long time. Now that I don't feel like I have to sneak my writing in, sometimes I don't get any writing done. It definitely worried me when he first moved out because I was just basically like partying and going to look at art and going on dates and just kind of enjoying my my freedom mm-hmm. since I did have him as a teenager. But then I realized that that was all just going to be part of what I was going to write, like that I needed to live to have more experiences to write about. And mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, this is all just part of the writing process. But I do every single day, I think, do something creative. I will draw or I will write something funny or I'll videotape something or I'll edit something that I love, you know, like I'll just try to make something. Mm -hmm. And it just really helps me feel connected to myself and to that younger self that was cutting out people's clothing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like uh, I I always have like a little collage thing by me and like a little I have an exacto knife by me to collage with. So just doing low stakes things has been really important for me. Things that I know I will not publish. Things I know don't have to be good enough to be in a gallery or a museum. Just things for me to enjoy, to, you know, have fun with and not necessarily show. Yeah, there's something incredibly freeing about low stakes creativity. Yes. And I find myself wanting that more and more, like almost craving it. Because if I'm doing something that no one will ever see... And that will never be part of my work. I can enjoy it in a way that I can't necessarily enjoy something that's much higher stakes, where I have to, you know, worry about what people are going to think. So for me, one of those things is photography, and I'm very, very bad at it. Very, very Aww. bad. But that's okay, <laughs> because I love holding the camera and being like, look at me. I'm a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're also an incredible baker and an incredible cook. And I tend to think of those things as creative. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're one of my favorite taste (laughs) testers. I know you've been branching into filmmaking lately. What are some of the pleasures of filmmaking and why do you pursue it? Filmmaking for me is a chance to finally like be on the other side of creating something with moving images that honors my own experiences. Like like most of us, I grew up watching so much television, so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not young, so a lot <laughs> of the TV that I watched was bad, like really bad. Like, I don't know if people remember, but like we only had two channels when I was growing up. And um, it's, every time I think about that now, when I'm flipping through the hundreds of channels and then all of the streamers, I remember like three channels and one of them didn't even really come in. Yeah. Like, people just don't know like what we like our struggle. Know us, Gen X. Know us. Know us. 
know us, even though I'm not quite Gen X. I'm like Are you right millennial? on the No, I'm not a millennial. I'm like one of those middle I'm late seventies, so it's weird. Yeah. Oh, you're just in that ether. I'm no in generation. the ether. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Uh yeah. So I, I I like, you know, when I was younger, my dad had a video camera, which was such a big deal. Like none of my friends had video cameras at their house. And this video camera was just everything. Like we would make fake ads, basically TikToking before TikTok. We were prehistoric. <laughs> I knew that's what you were um, going to say. You know, that's Nailed where it. we were. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it was just so much fun. It's fun to capture an image, a moving image and share it again and then manipulate it, edit around it. It reminds me a lot of writing fiction. When we when we write fiction, we're providing everything. We're doing the music. We're doing the foreshadowing. We're doing the character development, the images, the setting, like all these beautiful things that in film require so many different layers. Mm -hmm. So it's just fun to take those layers apart and work on them one by one, especially since it's just not easy to find media about queer Palestinians, queer Egyptians, speaking in English and just being kinky or whatever it is that we're doing, right? I think that we've come forward, we've we've moved ahead a little bit in terms of representation of Muslims on film and television. But to be honest, those people who tend to get those opportunities are men. You know, mm -hmm. I love Hassan Minhaj. I love Rami Youssef. I love all these dudes that are getting these incredible opportunities, but it's been much harder for people who aren't men and people who are femme, people who are women, to get those kinds of bigger opportunities to share our stories. And so for a long time, I thought, well, I have to get some sort of big deal or I have to do it the proper way. And my manager would submit me to things and writer's rooms, et cetera for other people's projects. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, I realized that I was surrounded by actors and filmmakers and editors and gaffers, and they were all queer and amazing, and most of them needed jobs. And so I was like, why don't we just work together and make stuff, make our own stuff, and try to make it with, you know, at a level or at a quality that, you know, we're proud of, mm -hmm. which is difficult because things cost money. But it is. You know, that's the <laughs> challenge I find with filmmaking in L.A., especially if you have friends in L.A., you you know people who can do pretty much anything that needs to be done on a film set. Yes. But cameras do cost money. In addition to time, everything time. costs money, especially when you're making like independent work. That money can be very hard to come by. It is. I mean, you're right. The men do get the opportunities much more bountifully than women do which is yeah. not to say that women don't but and also white people i mean correct you know i'm oh, talking yeah, about I mean, my brothers but saying. yeah yeah so it seems like community is a real engine for your creativity as well what does it mean for you to be part of a creative community and how does it help you to make i've i've been like really into community building for so long as an undergrad i didn't really get to do that much because I had a child. And yeah. so once I graduated, my, my son got a little bit older, I was able to really build the kinds of communities that I wanted to be a part of. So in Austin, I had a very beautiful, rich 
community of musicians, artists, lots of Arab Americans who wanted to support each other. And then in Michigan, you know, building a community with people out in Detroit and Dearborn and working with West Asian and North African writers by running an, a literary nonprofit, um, which is the most thankless work I've ever done, but also the most satisfying, like the parties we would have. Oh, my God. So amazing. <laughs> so much dancing, so much belly dancing by people who are, you know, genetically uh, connected to belly dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So community to me means like this kind of consistent threading and kind of knitting with each other. So so we are you know, I'll I'll do a thread, another person will do a thread, et cetera, until we can create this like bigger canvas together. I mean, and you know this, like as someone who's like supported communities and um, organizations, like it doesn't get done by itself. No, it doesn't. Someone has to always be pushing with someone else. Like it's just a a bigger process that involves work for everyone, but also celebration for everyone. But yeah, and and honestly, as a kinky person too, realizing that so much of what I used to know or what most of us know about kink and BDSM is not true. Mm-hmm. You know, most people don't engage in kink or BDSM alone or casually. We have communities where we do that, you know, mm-hmm. and in the community we have different roles that we play. Um, and so kind of bringing that humility and saying in my community what are the roles that i can play you know yeah. and they're not always going to be like the one who Center motorboats everyone yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were thinking exactly what i was yeah well you know it's interesting that you bring up kink because one of the first things i found when i entered the kink community was that so much of the energy of the kink community happens in public spaces yeah and happens with other people and not just in the act of performing or engaging in kink but because not everyone does it you find your people yes and in addition to of course the parties and all of that and i don't know if they still do this but back in the day they used to do these things called munches yeah where you would just go to a restaurant in the light of day or at night yeah. doesn't matter and and engage with people in your community, even if it wasn't about the thing that holds you together. Yes. And uh, as a person who is shy and scared, well, not anymore, but I, especially in my <laughs> 20s, scared of everything, to find people who were just going to accept you no matter what. Yeah. And who were willing to socialize and look past your awkwardness and know that you had something to offer was so helpful it was salvation in so many different ways absolutely from bbc radio 4 britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip i thought in that moment oh my god we've summoned something from this board this is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Me. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Now, I know you put a lot of energy into the world creatively. Do you have a thick skin? When it comes to the ways that people engage with that work? Yes and no. I think that I have developed a thicker skin because, you know, like that example that we were talking about with the belly dancing mm. essay, right? Like at that point, I'd never written a nonfiction piece that got hate mail. I'd literally only written nonfiction pieces that people loved about, you know, being a single mom or experiencing like awful racism or whatever it is right it was the first time when i was like oh i might have stuff to say that people don't want to hear mm -hmm. and so i would say my skin at that point for that particular thing was thin but i really think it's important to allow yourself some grace you know there are times your skin will be thinner and there are times that will thicken up your skin and Really, there's no way to predict what people are going to think or what they're going to say about your work. So for me, I'm into having like a medium skin. 
a little bit of both, you know, mm-hmm. like just I'm just a, you were all just human. Right. Mm-hmm. We can't just be like, well, I don't give a fuck what people think. Yeah, sometimes I don't. But I do understand why someone would just like leave society and just write in a cottage for 40 years. And then, you know, upon their death, we discover like four amazing novels by them. Like, okay, cool. That's amazing. But that's just not the life I want, you know? Right. Does community help you in those times when, where people respond in a range of unpleasant ways to your work? Enormously. It's hard. It's hard to stick up for people when they're in an unpopular position. The people who do, I find, are very strong and incredible. You know, that's love, like just mm-hmm. showing up for someone. And when when they when they're not having a great time, you know, it's easy to show up to a wedding. Not always, uh, but it's easier to show up to something fun and big and just enjoy. But it's not as easy to show up when someone's having a really hard time. Mm -hmm. I find that that is where a lot of those connections become really strong. Um, Yes. And the trust builds. Right. So. I think it's really, really important to turn to community and to allow them. It's not just that you need them. It's that they also need you. Like they need to care for you. People need Mm -hmm. to care for each other. It's something that's just part of who we are. And allowing others to care for you is such a huge, it's a skill, you know, it's a skill. (laughs) You know, that's, it's interesting that you say that because I think, especially for some of us, it's, it's actually easier to show up than to mm-hmm. allow people to show up for you, which is yes. certainly I'm something I'm still learning. Me too. And do you allow people to show up for you? I do. I do. And I've gotten a lot better at it. In the past, if they didn't show up in a specific kind of way, I would be mm-hmm. very annoyed. Um, <laughs> but people are just imperfect. They're going to say stupid shit. They're going to, you know, mess up and and make mistakes and... It, it really, to me, is all about the intention. What is the intention when someone shows up? Are they intending to really be there for me? Mm-hmm. And how do they show that? You know, is it consistent? So, and it can get really tricky because once you reach a certain point, you know, as you know, like, sometimes you worry. Like, for me, sometimes I'm like, do you really care about me or do you need a letter of recommendation? You know, like. Yes. Um, and <laughs> that's age hard. Old question. Yeah. <laughs> But that's that's not my business, right? That's actually not my business. Like my business is to accept the love Mm -hmm. and have good, compassionate boundaries. So Mm -hmm. if someone's there for me and everything's great and then later they ask for a letter of ref and I can't do it, I can just have a boundary then. You know, it's just like revolutionary to think of like, oh, wait, I can say no and I can do it compassionately. And it's their business whether they accept that no or not, not mine. Absolutely. Yeah. I just have one last question. What do you want for yourself at this stage of your life in this stage? I mean, either professionally or personally, like what are your ambitions for yourself? That's such a good question. Thank you. I would really love to continue writing books and publishing them. But mostly at this point, I would really love to get a chance to make a big film, just make Mm -hmm. the kind of film that I dream of making, which is sort of expansive and beautiful 
I want to be able to tell more stories in ways that I haven't before, whether it be like on stage or in a book or in film. I want to be able to have the kind of or to continue to have the kind of resilience to make those things happen, but also to attract support for those things. So those are that's basically it. You're the best, Brenda Gerard. Thank you so, so much for joining me on the Roxanne Gay Agenda. <laughs> it's never going to not be funny. <laughs> the Gay Agenda. Thank you for having me. You can keep up with me and the podcast on social media, on Twitter at R-G-A-Y and Instagram at RoxanneGay74. Our email is RoxanneGayAgenda at gmail.com and we would love to hear from you. From Luminary, the Roxanne Gay Agenda is produced by Curtis Fox. Our intern is Yesenia Moreno. Production support is provided by Caitlin Adams and Meg Pillow. I'm Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.